we're doing today is continuing on in a series that we're calling Covenant Essentials. And so this week, uh, we're talking about creating community. Terrence kind of kicked us off with almost uh, a preface to the whole thing two weeks ago and talked about what it meant to look back at what God has done in order to look forward. And then Craig came up last week and really laid out a, a beautiful vision of what it means to share the gospel, what it means to live our lives as a witness to the world outside. And what these things that we're walking through in these uh, next, this week and two more, these essentials are one of the first things that drew me to Covenant Church. When my wife first said, hey, there's this church that's um, looking for a pastor, and she sent me this um, job posting, naturally the first thing I do is I go to the, the website. And I go to the about page and I start scrolling down and there are four core practices that Covenant Church lives by. This is what I read. And it's sharing the gospel and creating community and living on mission and cultivating worship. And I said, I can get behind that. And the beautiful thing is that this is a church that those are not just things on a website. Those are not just um, things we've written down. But in a real sense, these core practices are who we are. And if we're going to do them, it's almost an annual right that we should have to walk back through them and say, how do we do them again? How do we do them better? How do we go deeper? And so that's what this whole month is. And so we'll finish January just talking about what are the essentials of our faith, of who we are, as we continue to build this culture of Covenant Church in Bowling Green. And so as we talk about these core practices today, uh, all four of them, you'll see, point to the general mission to know Jesus and make him known. And yet one of the hallmarks of the culture that we first experienced when we visited, just interviewing in May, was this is a community that feels like a family, which on one hand is an incredible thing to have a couple hundred people that feel like a family. On the other hand, what is harder to break into than family? Right? And so on one hand, it's this incredible close-knit thing that we love and cherish, and on the other side you go... You have to marry into a family. You have to fight into a family. Who hasn't sat across from in-laws uh, to be and gone, gosh, how am I ever going to get inside with these people? Uh, every young man who's uh, went to meet his future bride's father knows the intimidating feeling of going, this guy doesn't really want me in, and he's going to make me work for it. And so we, what, what we want to avoid as a community is being a community that's so much of a family that we create any sort of intimidation. Which is why the beautiful practice that's on the website, the beautiful practice that we ascribe to is creating community. Creating community is something different than living in community. Living in community is something that, that you can just do. But creating community is a charge that we have to do for others. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at biblical community through the lens of Acts chapter 2. We're going to answer a couple questions. Who is community? What is community? How do we do it? And then I'm going to actually ask, how do we create community in Bowling Green? We're going to talk through what it looks like in the early church, and then I'm going to talk about what covenant community groups might look like. Some of you are already participating in rich community life, and I hope that continues. Some of you have been waiting for a chance to sneak into some way to plug into this family, and maybe today is going to be your day. But I'm excited about this. So um, first, the first thing we need to understand before we get started, before we even read the scripture, the first thing, community is not something you do. It is something you are. Churches get this wrong a lot. Community is something you do. So you have to join a group, check a box, live a certain way, and that's how you take care of that part of religion. Community is not something you do. It is something you are. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. It says, And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
And so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, what you need to understand before I go any further, this is Peter concluding kind of the first sermon of the first church service of the early church. So all these people are gathering around, and, and Peter gets up and just preaches. And as he concludes his sermon, 3,000 are saved. They were continually devoting themselves, these 3,000, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All those who had believed were together. They were together. And they had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, were sharing with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the end of the first sermon, the end of the first day of church, Peter had a pretty good day. His church went from 120 to 3,120 like that. And yet, how are we going to get all these people into this family? And so what you see immediately, they're, they're basically asked Peter, what do we do? And the answer in, in Acts chapter 2 is he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, watch what happens. In verse 44, it says those who believed were together. Verse 46 shows them meeting together. But I think that I, I read it twice in verse 44. It's important to say that they were together. Because there's this sense about these new believers that they just kind of came together and then they just sort of spent life together and they did life together and they ate together and they sang together and they prayed together and they just were. Not just in church meetings, right? Not just Sunday mornings, but it says in homes, in their daily existence, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. What they did was they existentially shared life together. I would argue that there are two levels of Christian friends. If you are a Christian in this room, you have two levels of friends. You have the type of friend that is faithful enough to say, how can I pray for you? Some of you have that friend. There's a different level of friend that's walking through life with you and therefore doesn't have to ask how they can pray for you. Right? There's, there's two different types of friends. One is faithful enough to say, how do I pray for you? And then there are those people that just know. One of them is sort of friendly related to you. The other one is doing life with you. And those are rare and beautiful things. For all of eternity, pastors have been asking why you don't come to church more often. Why don't you come to church more often? I didn't see you last week. Why weren't you here? What are we doing? Can I change the music? Can we make it louder, softer? What do you want? The people in Acts 2 didn't have to be begged to go to church. There's never one time in the whole book of Acts where anybody has to be asked or invited. Over and over, you see the believers were just together. You had a harder time keeping them apart than you did getting them together. You couldn't keep people away. But they weren't just drawn to a formal church, to a Sunday morning, to a, like a, a feel-good experience. They were drawn to each other. And this is a sign of, of life in a church, in a people. Like a baby cries, that's a sign of life. You hear the baby cry, you go, that's, that baby's alive. A church that can't stay away from each other, a people that can't help but gather, that's the sign of a church that's alive. Because when people come together, when the body of Christ comes together, when two or more gather, when four get together, when six have dinner, when eight go and approach the community, 
That's life. And that's life extending further out. People who experience new life simply come together. Have you ever been to a family reunion? When we were little, we would go to family reunions. We would drive from San Antonio to some tiny dot on a map. It was always two or three hours away. It was always some weird Polish or Czech name. I don't know what it was, but we'd show up, and my mom would say, this is really important. It's a family reunion. And I noticed every year that we would go, I'd never met any of these people except at family reunions. And then one day we stopped going because we weren't in relationship with any of these people. It was just a formality that we showed up at the same place, and we called it a family, but we didn't know them. There were these weird cousins with weird accents, and I don't know anything about you. And that's the kind of family reunion that dies. So when church becomes a family reunion where we all come together but we don't know each other, eventually that church dies. Because nobody wants to go and be with relative strangers once a week or once a year in order to check a box and say, yeah, we did it. Everybody wants to be known and deeply known and loved in spite of themselves. When we are a community, people people in this room will be in each other's living rooms sharing throughout the week. They'll be sharing and praying and eating and laughing and ultimately changing the world. And the beautiful thing is so much of that already happens organically. And yet there are some people here that are already cringing inside. Some people that are wired a lot like me going, oh, I see where this is headed. I see the card next to me on the chair. There's a pin with it. They're going to make me do something. This is not good. I'm going to have to go to someone else's house or worse, someone is going to come to my house. They might have children. They might make a mess. I don't know. I have to know people. I have to share things. I have to be vulnerable. None of that sounds appealing. And yet, even though there are some people in the room who go, I'm just not wired for community, for church, for sharing life. It's not my temperament. Who are these people in Acts 2 that can't get enough of each other? Who are these people? Acts 2, 5, we're not going to read it, but I'll tell you, it says the people came from every nation. Every nation was included in this young church. All these different ethnicities came and joined this young church. It means Jews and Gentiles, Parthians, Egyptians, Arabs, Romans, they're all mentioned. Why? Because among them, there were people that had a temperament that said, I don't really know if I want to be in a group setting. I kind of like to do my thing, and I'm, I'm good by myself, and I'm, maybe I'm introverted, or maybe. And yet it says all these people came together. They came together in the messiness of sharing life together as common believers. All temperaments, all backgrounds, all persuasions. What we see in Acts 2 is there isn't an out clause. There isn't a way out of the idea that we as believers should share life. Which answers another question. People say, well, well what if I don't have anything in common with the people that, that ultimately, you know, somehow I'm being called into community? Well, what if we don't have anything in common? You say, they did? Jews and Gentiles and Parthians and Romans and Arabs and Egyptians, they had something in common. Not only did they not have race in common or wealth in common, they didn't have language in common. Imagine going to a group, a church group. It's Wednesday night and you're going, I'm going to go to these people's houses. And you walk in and nobody even speaks the same language. I think that would be fun. You'd figure some things out pretty quick, but the only word you had in common was Jesus. And so it begs the question, if you go, gosh, I don't know if I'd have anything in common with those people, or I'm not sure I want to spend two hours with with those people. How strong is this tie to Jesus that we have? And shouldn't it be enough that that would be our common cause? 
the answer is, yeah, I mean, Jesus is enough, but I still don't enjoy being with him, then we've raised a whole other issue, and I have office hours all week, and we can counsel if you like. So who is everyone? What? What is this community about? Verse 42 says, we're devoted to the apostles' teaching and devoted to fellowship. Devoted to fellowship is important to me. It means devotion to something means you work at it. You know a devoted husband, the difference between a husband and a devoted husband is the devoted husband is the one who's working at it. If you ask somebody and you say, describe your husband, and they say, devoted husband, good job. If they say, uh, he is my husband, you got work to do. Work is required to be good at anything. Work is required to be good at community. Work is required to be good at plumbing. Work is required to be good at being a spouse. So they worked at it. Fellowship is loving each other, bearing each other's burdens, walking honestly with other people. It's not always easy. It's not always clean. Sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes you miss a month. But it's a commitment. For Americans, this is not a natural thing to be devoted to other people in community. It's unnatural, but we can get there. I would describe it this way. The surgeon, on his first day, is not as skilled as he is on his last would anybody disagree with that? I mean, the surgeon on his very first day out of med school and the surgeon on his very last day after practicing for 30 or 40 years, there's a different level of skill there. How does he get better? He practices. That's why they call it practicing medicine, right? Think about that. Elective surgery, good luck. Okay. Practicing medicine. Because it's a, it's a practice. They get better. You go to the dentist, and he's brand new out of, out of dental school, and you go, I don't know if I want you practicing on me, though. He practices. We have to learn how to practice fellowship because it's not natural to us. We are individualistic people. We are Americans. We get in our car by ourselves. We drive to our job. They even give us cubicles now at jobs. That way we don't have to interact with other humans. We send emails or call someone on the phone rarely, and we maybe text each other, because words on a screen are a little easier than looking at a human being. We get back in our cars by ourselves, we drive back to our house, we pull in our driveway, we pull in our garage, we close the garage behind us so the neighbor can't come over and say hello. We walk into our house, which is attached to our garage, we see our family, this only little safe cluster of people we like. Sometimes don't. And then we do the whole thing again tomorrow. This is who we are, we're individualized people. It is, it is something that we fight for. It's something that we love as Americans. Everybody can be their own self. Everybody can be whoever you want to be. You don't have to talk to anybody if you don't want to. You have freedom. And yet that very same uh, value is something that hurts us when it comes to being a, an integrated church. We have to practice fellowship. Why? Why? Why would we do this? Why do we live in community? Why do we care about being together? Why do we care about being one? Why do we care about being unified? A unified people, Jesus said that there was strength and unity. And when you've experienced that, and there are people in this room who will not, as I say this, when you have experienced being part of a community that is something bigger than yourself, there's nothing else like it. There is nothing else like going through tragedy and having people around you who can walk through it with you. There is nothing else like going through triumph and having people to celebrate your best day. There's nothing like it. And when we don't have it, we are missing out on the fullness. Jesus prayed for unity so that we would be one and we could go into a dark world with all of the light together. One torch or a thousand torches, which is brighter? 
And yet we miss it, and we don't even know what we're missing sometimes. Why? Because we're consumers. This is that American thing that's wired into us. We are consumers. We ask, what's in it for me? I've led a lot of small groups in my life. And people don't often tell the leader why they left the group. They make up some other excuse. But as a pastor, you hear from other people who go, yeah, it just wasn't working out for me. You go, well, what happened? Why don't you go to your group? Why aren't you in community? Why aren't you with other believers? I just wasn't getting anything out of it, is what people say. That's the most common response to why people don't go to a group. I just wasn't getting anything out of it. Which is to think that the point of being in a fellowship with other people is to get because we consume. It's what we do naturally. The question really is, what are we putting in? You ever seen one of those lab tests where they're, they're testing rats on various things and the, the rat goes and it presses the lever and if it presses the right lever, then the cheese drops out and they'll give it a certain drug and see if it can keep it and what makes it better and what's the aptitude and it's a whole thing. Google, Google rats and cheese or something and see what happens. But it, it's, it's a common thing. The rat goes in and it has two choices. It makes the choice. It presses the lever. The cheese rolls out. The, the rat learns. If I press the lever, I get the cheese. We are that way. In our lives, we think as we walk through subconsciously, we're looking for the levers of life. What, what lever can I press that gives me the cheese? Which one gives me the treat? Which one makes me feel better about my life? Which one gratifies me? Which one adds to my value? And the danger is we then find ourselves in what we colloquially call the rat race. Where all we're doing is running through life trying to get one more, one more, one more, one more. We become takers. It isn't that we have rejected biblical community as a people. It is that we've never actually been in biblical community. Because people who've been in it don't ever want to leave it. And people who have not experienced it Take it or leave it. I said they sold all their possessions. They had all things in common. The hallmark of the early church was they were givers. They looked at a room full of people and said, what resources do I have that might make this body stronger? Which is different than which lever can I press that would give me one more treat? And so instead of, uh, that girl in our group is always in crisis. It's exhausting. Every time we show up, she's got another problem. The attitude changes to, I'm so grateful that we can help her bear her burdens in this season. You say, well, let's say I was open to this. You've not convinced me yet, but let's say I'm open to this sort of community. Let's say I'm willing to consider what that would look like. How do we even do it? Once we shift from consumers to givers, right? Jesus being our model, Jesus coming to lay his life down for others. Once we shift into that mode and just say, I'll open the door to that. Verse 46 and 47 said, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. God was adding to their number daily. That's biblical community. They met all as one. And then they met in houses and they praised God together and they sang songs together. And then God was adding to their number. Because they were not inward focused, they were outward focused, and they were seeking to bless a larger community. So if that's biblical community, how do we live that out here? How do we take part in, as our core practice says, creating community? 
We have to go beyond living in community. Living in community is good. So if you're doing that, don't stop doing that. But as believers, as followers of Jesus, we don't exist to live in community. We exist to create it. We exist to create room at our table so that one who is outside might come in. Make a way that everyone can find their way in to enjoy the feast that we enjoy every single day as followers of Jesus. Make a path to belonging for someone else. We're here to create community. Part of being relatively new around here is I get to talk to different people with all different perspectives. And when an 18-month member comes to me and says, I, I love this community. I go, okay, you, how long have you been a member? 18 months. Okay. What would you change? I go, well, if it's 18 months, I don't really feel like I've broken into the kind of the inner circle of community yet. I don't, I don't really feel like we're, we're known by anybody, but, you know, it's a two-way street and it's probably on me too, but I, I just don't know how to how to break through. 18 months sitting in these chairs going, I still feel like I'm not part of the family. That's a reality that we have to address and go, we can't have that. We have 13 people up here today. I got 10 more certificates on my desk of people I'm just waiting to have that last meeting with so we can sign the certificate and bring them up here. And that would make 25, 30 in the last couple of months of brand new people who go, I want to be part of this family. To which we respond and go, how do we do that? We're going to make an avenue. We have to make a way. We have to leave an open chair at the table. We have to get better. And so we'll have community groups. I know, big idea, right? Never heard of that. It's been happening since Acts 2. It's not new. But what would be new is if we engaged in it deeply. What would be new is if we were outward facing in them. That instead of having nodes of um, huddles where we cuddle around the fire together, keep out the outsiders out, and then go back to church on Sunday morning, we would have nodes of activity where we come together so as to look out and say, who needs to have a seat at our table? A collection of believers that are practicing faith. What does that look like? Let's be really practical. Three things, if you remember nothing else today. The three things that I think are the hallmarks of an Acts 2 community and the three things that will be a hallmark of community groups here at Covenant. They gather, they share, and they bless. I'm going to make you say it now. They gather, they share, and they bless. That's it. So we'll go through them. What does it mean to gather? Well, it says they went in each other's homes and they ate together. How many of you eat? Just by show of hands. Straw poll. Whoa. So far, everybody's included. I would say the easiest way to gather as people is to eat together, because you do it anyway. Here, here's the math. Let me do some math for you. I'm not very good at math. We've been through this before. I didn't do very well in my one college class, math for artists, okay? How many paintbrushes are in the picture? I don't know. I got an F, so I took it again, and I got a D, and somehow they gave me a degree. So that was my, uh, that's math, so that's why I don't handle finances in the church. Um, 21 meals a week. The average person, if we're just, we're just being general here, seven days, three meals a day, 21 meals a week. What if I asked you to give up one of those meals and eat it with other people? You are then looking at giving up 4% of your weekly meals to spend with other believers and follow Jesus together. That doesn't seem like a ton. Here's the other thing. What if I said you could meet every other week in a group? 
you're busy, life is hard, you got little kids, whatever the excuse is. And I said, you know, what if you only met twice a month? Now you're talking about one out of 42 meals, which is 2% of your meals. What if someone said, would you give up 2% of your meals by yourself to eat them with other people so as to look more like the church in Acts? And I don't know a believer that wouldn't go, yeah, I guess that's doable. Because eating, gathering, naturally leads to sharing of life, right? What do you do over a dinner table? Unless you're really weird and creepy, you talk. You talk to each other, you share life. How was your week? How was your day? Why do you look so sad? What's wrong with you? When's the last time you shared a meal with somebody with gladness and sincerity of heart, as it said in Acts 2? Gladness and sincerity of heart. Like, when is the last time you stopped pretending to be enjoying a meal at someone's house and you actually enjoyed it? 90% of dinners with other people are like really nice acting jobs. I'm convinced of this. You're like, yes, we'll come to dinner. And then you put on your best face. You finish fighting with your spouse in the car. You agree to talk about good things when you get inside. You're arguing and then the door opens and you go, hey, we're so glad you're here. You try to avoid the third glass of wine lest you slip back into that fight. You get out of the dinner. You go back to the car. And as soon as the doors are closed, you continue the argument you were having before you got there. This is not gladness and sincerity of heart. Gladness and sincerity of heart is what happens when you practice true fellowship, when you are known and accepted and you are real with other human beings. Then the mask comes off and you leave. And you go, that was fun to argue in front of people for a change. And we go, right. And now they know how to pray for you. They didn't even have to ask. (laughs) When you gather with people, you become an extension of Jesus out in the community. So you gather. Second thing you do is you share. You gather and then you share. What do you share? Share your life. Share your story. Share prayer. Share worship, share food, share resources, share Jesus together. Share the blessing of not having to ask, how do I pray for you? Well, this is a gray line, right? Like people want to know really clearly. People want to be told, Let, just what are the boxes I need to check so I can get this thing off my plate? And this is vague on purpose. Gather and share. Everybody has a different flavor of what that means, and you're going to eventually fall into a group with people who, who think it means what you think it means. I know a group that, um, I think it was in the book Saturate, when they were talking about, they sat down as a group and they listed all of their resources on a a big like piece of butcher paper on the wall as a group. Well, I have an extra car. I'm an empty nester at college. He went to college. We have an extra car if someone ever needs that. Okay. What about you? Well, you know, I don't have any of that, but I'm really good with plumbing and electrical stuff. So if you ever have, okay, great. What about you? We have this. What about you? We have that. And they put it all on a board together. And so as their group had need, where did that come from? They were able to share. They held their resources in common. And that's like super exciting for the grad student who goes, I got to get in with some people with money because then we'll write that up there. (laughs) I'll pay off my student loans in my first week. That's not how it works, but there is this sense that when you are in community with people, you share. We had a couple in our our last group that they didn't have kids yet. They were a young married couple. I married them. They, They were in our group. They were in our house every week. They knew my children. And so every so often they'd say, you guys need to go out. We're going to watch your kids. So in resources, they said, we have some time. And they would come to our house. They would watch our children. They'd put them to bed. And we'd get to go out. You think that's not valuable? 
they weren't related to me. They weren't my family. They were my community. Maybe my favorite uh, highlight of our last season that we had with this group, we were together for a couple of years. I mean, did this study and then didn't do this for a while and then forgot to meet twice. And then kind of, it's just one of those spits and starts kind of things. But we were doing life. And there was this terrible hailstorm that came through uh, Texas and their, this, this same couple that was watching our kids all the time. They had one car that was really well insured and one car that was sort of kind of insured. And that both cars had all their windows blown out by the hail. Like literally windshields crashed through. So both cars are totaled in insurance speak. The problem is they only have really insurance on one. So that one gets fixed. But the other one, it's a thousand bucks just to make it drivable. He's in pharmacy school. He doesn't have any money to fix it. And they, they go, we don't know what we're going to do, but for now we're a one-car family. But I, I need that because I got it's 25 miles to get to pharmacy school every day. Someone else in the group, an attorney, she's working for, uh, she represented foster kids in the system. She's an attorney. She's a single woman. She's in our group. She goes, you're never going to believe this, but I saved a thousand bucks on something last week and I was asking God, what can I do for it? Like, what can I do with this? She writes a thousand dollar check and hands it to people that she sort of kind of knows. Why? Because community. Because God gave her access and they had need and the two came together and it was beautiful. Not something we orchestrated, not something we studied, not something that, it was a function of people spending time together. When you gather, you share. The third and final thing you do is you bless. You'll be blessed in one, but you bless outwardly. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. What believers do is they jump walls to see other people set free. They reach out and they bless the community around them. And so there's all sorts of things. What this basically is, is a group with a cause. Lots of groups get together and warm themselves around the fire. What will make a covenant group different? A covenant community group will go and bless the world around them, often without agenda. What does that mean? Let's say you wanted to take up the cause of third grade literacy. Because studies show that if you get out of third grade and you're not proficient at reading, you will never catch up and you will never make anything of yourself. And our system puts way too many kids that can't read very well into fourth grade and then they're just lost. So we know a group that said, we're going to tackle third grade literacy. And so they gave themselves to an elementary school and every day someone from the group is there tutoring third graders that are falling behind so they don't fall behind further. And they made a commitment without an agenda. They went and told the principal, we're going to tutor third graders to read. And the principal said, yeah, well, what do you want out of it? They said, nothing. We're followers of Jesus. We would love to bless your community. You think that started a conversation? Volunteer at the pregnancy center. Maybe you have history. Maybe someone in your group has a story of, of that being important in their life. And you say, hey, we're going to man the phone so that when there's a girl on campus who's trying to struggle and make a decision that doesn't know what she's going to do, we're going to be there to answer and say, we'll pray for you. We will stand in the gap for you. We will pay for your medical care. We'll have a family in the church. We will find someone to adopt that baby. You keep the baby. Think that matters to somebody? Global connections. Maybe you care about international students. And you say, hey, we're going to meet twice a month and once a month. We're just going to have all these random international people in our house, and we're going to love them and treat them like family and just see what happens. Maybe it's open homes, and you go, we're going to find a way to bless that community because that's my heartbeat. Whatever it is, you have, you have a cause that forces a group to not be insular, but to be looking outside. Eat, share, bless. You gather, you share, and you bless. It's a community group. Right, the qualifier here is that I'm not a very good rule maker. 
And I'm certainly not a rule follower. And as you get to know me, you will learn that. So there are no rules in what a community group looks like. But there are principles that make it matter. And so if you can find a way to gather without having a meal, awesome, do that. If you can find a way to share without having every second Tuesday of the month, do that. But the key is, are you rhythmically and regularly in community with other believers? Are you gathering together? Are you sharing your life? Are you blessing the community around you? What this is, is about creating easy, doable things that are already part of your life. You're already doing most of this. It's not about adding a new religious duty. And some of you are in the room and you're going, well, he never mentioned Bible study. He didn't mention study. You can't have a group unless you have a study. We have to choose a book together. We have to sit down together. We have to sit in a semicircle. Someone has to be the leader. Who's going to ask the awkward questions to which no one answers? But someone might rightly be saying, look, you read the scripture. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's fair. We are about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And so what we're not going to do is go to a biblical community model that requires mandatory circling up to gain more knowledge. Why? If you go to Acts 2 and you sampled 100 people, there might be one that could read or one that knew the scripture. And so it was necessary that one might circle them up and explain the scripture. One might say, here's what it says in Jeremiah. Here's what it says in Isaiah. Here's the warning from the prophet. Now? If I asked you to pull your phone out, 90% of people in the room have the entirety of Scripture in their phone at their fingertips at a moment's notice. So it's radically different. So should we be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Yes. In fact, should we be doing that together? Probably. But there are all kinds of outlets to get that done that don't include trying to get a family of six kids with a family of four kids with an empty nester with a college student together and saying, now we need to figure out how to build an hour and a half in here so we can all go through this Bethmore study. Because you can, but here's my guess. You will meet a whole lot less. Your group will die a whole lot faster because if that is your goal, to gain knowledge, it won't work. Modern Christians are not lacking in knowledge. We are lacking in practice. We have the entirety of Scripture at our fingertips. We have more studies than anyone could ever imagine. We have more resources than anyone has ever thought possible. Modern Christians are like doctors that have finished med school five times and never once seen a patient. Community groups are about practicing. It's about getting out in the world and practicing our faith together. Should your group of practitioners decide to do a study while you practice and bless the community? Awesome. God bless you. Do that. But if your group of practitioners says, you know what, let's keep doing things separately, or maybe I'll do one with you because we have this spare time together and, and you guys can do something else on the side, maybe, but maybe we'll just get together, share life, and bless this community, and we'll grow as we do it. So why groups? All of that to say, Why? To create community. If we are going to be people about creating community, then we need to include a way that people that are newer to the community can join. Join the family, be part of the community. The people that were standing here today can say, I have an avenue into that. And here's the thing, some of you are not going to opt into this. Some of you are going to say, you know what? Not for me, not right now. That's okay. It's okay. 
It's no mandatory, no guilt, no shame. I will tell you that I cannot imagine doing life without it. It is a burden. It can be a hassle. It can be a mess. It is a few less hours a week that I have that are mine. And I cannot imagine living without it. So, it's not something you need to do. It's something you already are. And you have this. Somewhere near you, you either sat on one, you are sitting on one. Watch out. There's a pin with it. If you are a couple and you want to do one together, you can do that. If you are a couple and you want to do one, two people separately because you have crazy mixed up schedules and you want to be separate, I would ask that everybody would fill this out together right now. And so you can click your pin. We got the clicky kind so I could hear you click them and know if you're writing. Thank you. And here's the question. It's really self-explanatory. Are you currently attending a group of some sort? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. If so, what kind of group? Oh, this is my women's group we meet on this morning, or this is my singles group we meet at this night, or it's a group only for middle-aged people of this trade or whatever. Whatever. Tell us what it is. If you're already doing something, keep doing that. Is it open or closed? Meaning if if I came up to you tomorrow and I said, oh, you've been having a, a Bible study with a group of women for 15 years? I have these three new people that would love to join. Would you wince? If you would wince, then your group is closed. You are not actively looking to invite people in. Not right, not wrong, just the facts. So that helps me know that if you're already doing something, that's not something we're going to be able to plug people into. Okay? Are you interested in being in a group? Yes, I want to host one. Oh gosh, what does that mean? That means that you would open your home and maybe clean your living room and even one bathroom every so often. There's not more to it than that. People go, well, gosh, but then don't I have to feed people? You said we're going to eat together, and then that becomes a hassle. You know what we have learned to do? We call it BYOD, bring your own dinner, okay? We have a table. We'll let you sit there, bring whatever you want. So somebody brings leftovers, and somebody brings their fast food, and somebody brings a bag of tacos, and we become best friends, and that's how that's going to work. So if you're hosting, it doesn't mean you're feeding an army. If you say, yes, I'm interested, but I'd want to attend. I don't want to host anything. That sounds like a burden. Check that. And if you say, you know what, I'm not interested right now, check that, and I will not bother you. What evenings work for you? All that apply. Gosh, I'm only available Mondays and Thursdays. Guess what? I bet there's 10 other people in this church that are only available on either Monday or Thursday. And then your contact info. Simple as that. If you do not want to be a part of this and you don't want me to contact you and tell you all kinds of nice things about how you can be part of community, check that one that says no, not right now. Otherwise, we are going to turn over heaven and earth to connect people, to get our groups going. My wife asked me this week, she goes, what are we doing? Like, how are you going to make this work? And I said, well, basically, I'm going to ask 150 people to give me all kinds of random information, and then we're going to lay it out on a table and do one of those weird things in the movies where we're like tying strings between things and hoping that it all comes out in a group. And she said, I'll come up to church and help this week if you need it. We got people that can put all of the info together. We just need the info. If we are going to be a people about knowing Jesus and making him known, it has to go beyond knowing Jesus. And the most effective way that modern believers make Jesus known, the most effective way that we can invite someone to sit at our table that always has an open chair, 
that always has room for one more, even if it ruffles our dynamics, even if it makes it awkward for a week or two, the way that we make Jesus known is by displaying the community that you experience here on Sunday out there on Monday. And this is a way to do it. So as you finish that up, the band is going to come back up. We're going to continue to worship. We're going to worship the God that we say we want to do this with, that we want to be about. At the close of the service, you have your card with you. If you choose to keep the pin, that is our gift to you. 